Well, that was a goodie. I think we knew it. I could hear you singing. It's good stuff, good stuff. Uh, you know, it struck me as I was in here and talking with some of you um, before the service started today that um, there are a good number of us that um, forgot what we look like without mask on. And um, so if uh, I apologize if I've introduced myself to you 14 times and still can't remember that I've met you. Um, but it's a good chance for us to look across the aisle and, and say, welcome back and um, good to see you again. And uh, now what was your name again? <laughs> Remind me of that again. And um, to know that we, uh, we do have a, a very blended and mixed uh, family of faith here. And with three different services going on, sometimes we don't overlap with them. It's almost like having three congregations all at the very same time. But uh, anyway, and then we have our online presence. We have someone joining us from West Virginia this morning watching. We have a, a family from, uh, where are they from, North Carolina? Tennessee that watches all the time, their family, yes. And, um, and so we have folks from all over. My brother-in-law would sometimes watch from California, which made me feel like I was really reaching the whole country for Christ. And, um, and uh, he was getting up early, too, because it's three hours uh, behind us over there. Anyway, have you ever noticed that um, how life and the world around us uh, is in the habit of changing without getting our permission? Things go all around us. You throw in a global pandemic when uh, there's a shutdown and you feel like uh, the, it just forces you to change physically and emotionally and relationally and spiritually. Everything gets affected because of shutdowns and because of things that go on. And, and those happen in an accelerated way with a pandemic, but they also happen every day all around us. Uh, most of the time, uh, we as human beings, we don't really like change. You may say, well, wait a minute, I like change. Well, Hear me out. We like, we like life to be predictable. We like it to be comfortable. We like to be in control. So if the change is something that you're wanting, it's usually something that makes you more comfortable or more happy or more joyful or something like that. That's the change we embrace. We're like, yeah, I got tired of that, so I embrace that change. But if it's something you like, something that you're, you feel safe within, somewhere where you feel comfortable, change isn't very welcome most of the time, and we really, really resist it. For much of last year, I was hearing uh, some congregants say, I just wish we could get back to normal. You remember that? You remember what normal was, you know, a year and a half ago? It's real different than it is now. But now we are saying, welcome to the new normal. Welcome to the new way of thinking and doing things. And normal, really, to me, is nothing more than the comfortable, predictable space that you live in. Do you feel okay with where you are and the way things are around you? That's the comfortableness we feel with change, and that's the part we like to make normal. I'd rather this to be my regular life. I don't like the fact that my brain tells me I can still do things that I did when I was 35. But I'm 56 now, and when I try those things, my body goes, um, stop it. Um, you can't do this. Or as my kids say, you just need to quit. Dad, <laughs> you just need to quit. Um, the church, though, has to adjust to changes as well without losing focus on the mission and the purpose that we have that's been the same place for over 2,000 years. The mission of the church has always been to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to make disciples for his kingdom. And I like the way a contemporary theologian said, we are to make disciple makers. 
not just make disciples, but to make disciples who make disciples. You see what I'm saying? We should be in the business of helping you become the disciple maker, the person that mentored you. You should be that mentor to someone else. And that's what we're in the business of doing. And the way we have done this, gone about making disciples and fulfilling that mission, has changed over the centuries. And folks, it's still changing today. One obvious way church is changing today is the use of online ministry. Um, Our online presence and and many others, you can join in worship or teaching or prayer from anywhere in the world with any church that you desire. If you want to hear really good preaching, you can always tune in to Andy Stanley instead of me. It's much, you know, he's really good. You know, I would watch him, but that's me. So, but the boundaries of space and time are really no longer boundaries when it comes to sharing the gospel. The things that restricted us in the past are really not there anymore. We can still be a part of the body even when we're not in the room together. But this change is challenging. It's frustrating for those of us that are used to the old way of doing church, especially for us pastors and leaders when we we thrive on face-to-face contact and want to interact with people, especially if you're an extrovert. Um, That's really challenging. But it is a wide door of opportunity as well. It's wide open, and we are learning how to navigate this as a church. You see, change happens. It's going to continue to happen. The question is, how will we be faithful in the midst of change? How will you adjust to the changes around you in order to be faithful, to fulfill the good calling of Christ, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to be a disciple maker in the kingdom of God, and how will you live that out? Now, a couple of weeks ago, um, Kathy shared uh, in her sermon, she made a statement that many of us don't know really what happens after Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost. We, we celebrate it, we read about it, we talk about the tongues of fire on their head and all that, and then for the next uh, 26 chapters, there's 28, we really don't know a lot about the book of Acts. And she challenged those listening in the, sermon she was, uh, in the service she was preaching in to make that a, a part of their summer reading list said, maybe you should pick up the book of Acts and read through it this summer. You know, it's 28 uh, chapters, which is probably less than 30 pages in like a regular book. It's really not that long, but it really illustrates the birth of the church, the new church after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And so that challenge is there. I make it to you this morning to make it a part of your list. So in part of that conversation, Kathy and I were discussing, he said, well, let's, let's take the next few weeks and kind of highlight some of the chapters, the stories that are in, um, in Acts. So we're going to do that at the beginning of this week and for the next two weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about some of those different stories. Now, we've already touched on one uh, from Acts chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago about Peter and John um, healing the man there at the, at the temple gate begging for stuff. That came actually out of our VBS curriculum um, because it was such a great story. So We're going to pick up today, though, in Acts chapter 6 and most of chapter 7. And and as we read, I want to remind you um, some some of the setting about the church of Jerusalem. Uh, The church in Jerusalem was part of the Jewish faith. That's where they, when they talk about the tabernacle, the synagogues, the leadership and all that, they're talking about the Jewish faith because Jesus was Jewish, if you didn't know that. And he he has exposed himself as the Messiah who they've been waiting for. And then, as you know, the religious leaders uh, killed Jesus. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father in heaven. 
And then he poured out his spirit on those folks just a little later. Now, the early Jesus followers uh, being, were, were Jews of the Jewish faith. Some were Gentiles who were kind of affiliated. And then you had some pagans, people that had come to Christ because of what they saw him do in his life. So you have this mixed bag of people that are all in Jerusalem. And they are all a part of this thing called the New Covenant Community. They're Jesus followers. In Acts later, they're called the Way, the people of the Way. Because Jesus said, I am the Way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. He says, this, this is the church of the Way. So I want us to read together. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 6, beginning verse 1. And we're going to read seven verses here. We're going to kind of jump around and move on. So it begins this way. In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And we'll pause there for a second. You can leave that scripture up. The Hellenistic Jews were kind of progressives. They had adopted the Greek language and culture as a part of expressing their faith. Now, why is that important? The Greek culture was very important in trade and commerce in the Mediterranean area, in the Middle East, and even into um, Northern Africa. It was the trade language of the people. It was the way they communicated. It was the way they, they, they bought and sold goods. And anybody that was going to be anybody, this was it. It was the Internet of Jesus' day. It was the way they communicated. Now, the Hellenistic Jews kind of have adopted this, and the Hebraic Jews did not like this. They did not care for them bringing this Greek language in. And if you know anything about the New Testament, it was all written in Greek. The Old Testament and the Torah were written in Hebrew. See the clash? We're already butting heads, and we're only six chapters into the new church after Jesus' resurrection. So it's going to get better. Just watch. So chapter 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, Now twelve, you remember Judas... Uh, took his own life, and they replaced him with Matthias, so they're back to 12 now. The 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us, being the 12, to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables to take care of these widows. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, I'm not saying these right, Timnon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They chose these. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and look at this, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That just kind of slides in there. Hey, we even had some preachers convert. It's amazing. So what's going on here? Old perspectives died hard, even in a new covenant community. It's hard to change the direction of a big ship if you know what I mean. We tend to bring our old prejudices and attitudes right along with us, even in the church, where we ask God to transform us and make us new. You see what I'm saying? We come to church and we say, God, mold me, make me, shake me, do whatever you wish, as long as I have a say-so. 
as long as you do it in, according to the parameters that I have set for you. And this is kind of what's going on here. In this situation, the Hebraic Jews are looking down on the Greek Jews or the Hellenistic Jews as second-class citizens. They're not acknowledging uh, the widows that they are there, and the Greeks are complaining. Now, have you ever heard about complaining in church? Have, y'all, have you ever? It's just so bizarre. Someone is being overlooked. Someone, some group needs attention. Someone is not getting enough of the budget. See what I'm saying? It's happening right here in Acts. And we're like, oh, this is all new. No, it's not. It's been here since the foundation of the church. So the 12 disciples, they see this need, and they say to the followers, locate um, the leadership that you need from among you. Let's find some people that you all trust that can take care of this. And this is where Stephen gets his start in ministry. And I want to talk about Stephen today. Um, He was identified as a young man of unusual gifts and talents. He kind of stood out, and everyone recognized that. This, This growing church faced new and growing opportunities, changes. Things were happening all around him. And Stephen was one of the seven men for the job. He would help distribute this daily food to the widows and make sure that they had food. And he was one of many. But this was not the only job that Stephen took on. He was actually very good at several things. He was an eloquent teacher, and he was a wonder worker. If you look at verse 8, it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Man, what a a legacy he was being known for. And look what happens. It says in verse 9, Opposition arose. Stephen was full of power and wonder and all this, but opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. And this is who they were, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. They were challenging this young man, and he was just trying to do his best. Trouble in the church. Changes are happening. Opposition arises. The big challenge for the religious leaders, even the ones who began following Jesus, was that their control of status quo was being challenged. They wanted to embrace Jesus as Messiah, but they did not want to let go of the structures and rules of the past. The Hebraic Jews only wanted to address the needs of the Hebraic members. And they were saying, no, this is much bigger than this. Christ has come for us all. When confronted by the religious aristocracy, Stephen stood tall, unflinching before them. They said his face even shone like an angel. He was unrattled. You couldn't tell. You know, if if it was me there, I'd probably get a a, a twitch or something in my eye, or you'd see me frown, or, or, you know, you're you're challenging me, or I can't believe you're being an irritable person to me. There would be some telltale sign that I did not agree with what you were saying with me. But Stephen just was so confident in his faith. He spoke to the challenges that they threw his way with confidence. 
And if you read in chapter 7 in Acts, in mind it was subtitled Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, which is the high court of religious leaders. He'd been called in. I encourage you to read it, but it, it maps out, if you read it, it maps out the revelation of God all the way from Abraham, where Abraham met Yahweh for the first time and became the faith of the Israelites to their present day, the resurrection of Christ. And it's this like run through scripture and it just ties it all together, dots all the I's and crosses the T's of the Old Testament. And it's fascinating, but it's only one chapter long. And so you kind of see it and very eloquently and spontaneously, Peter, I mean, excuse me, Stephen makes his defense. And he maps it out this way, three steps he sees in this thing. He says, first, with respect to the significance of the temple, he addresses them where they are. He says, brothers, Tell him, brothers, we are of the same faith. He says, Stephen illustrates from their Jewish scriptures that the God of the Old Covenant is not confined to any one special place, but God dwells in the midst of the covenant people. They wanted to keep God in the Holy of Holies in the temple at Jerusalem, and that was the sacred place where he was allowed to be. He wasn't allowed to be anywhere else. And he had, Stephen's saying, you forgot that The Ark of the Covenant represented His presence. It wasn't His presence, but it represented And He was right with us in the midst of everything. The 40 years in the wilderness. And everywhere we've gone into battle and where we've gone since. God has been represented as in our midst. And He says, this is what God is. He's not confined to the temple. Let Him out of the box. The second thing He says, the Old Covenant people have a long history. And now he's calling them this. He's saying, you, you old covenant people. The old covenant people have a long history of refusing to listen to and obey God's agents, which would have been the prophets of the Old Testament. They had a bad habit of killing them off, matter of fact, because they didn't like what they had to say. And he's saying, I don't know why you're getting angry with me. You haven't liked anyone that's spoken the truth of God to you. Matter of fact, you've killed them off. And the third thing he says in this little speech is the Old Covenant people have also have a long history of rebellion against the love of Moses, the law of Moses. He says, you have not obeyed the word anyway. And here's his conclusion. God does not dwell in the temple of Jerusalem only. Jews are resistant to God, refusing to listen to God and refusing to consecrate themselves to obedience. And finally, the Jews are closed to the indwelling presence of God in the Holy Spirit, all of which can be seen clearly in the rejection and murder of God's righteous one. He said, you've killed the very messenger of God himself. You have killed God himself. And in verse 53, he calls them stiff-necked and a couple of other choice things. (laughs) Kathy said, can we focus on that verse? I went, no. No. We'll mention it, but that's it. He basically called them a bunch of hypocrites. They were caring more about the institution than they were the God of the institution. You understand this major shift that's going on in this life. And it it brings it home to me going, do we care more about our physical plant, about our structure, about our, our order than we do the God of that order, the one that we come to serve? Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, you see a very similar address that he had with the, with the church leadership as well. It makes me wonder if Stephen happened to be there taking notes. 
because he basically shared his sermon with them. Well, as you can imagine, this speech infuriated the Sanhedrin. And beginning in verse 54, it says, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Well, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> teeth gnashing. And it wasn't a covered dish event. So, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. It says, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. I want to address that a minute. This was a way of them counting their ballot. Saul became the guy that said, okay, how are you casting your ballot of what we should do with this man? And they would lay down their identifier, their cloak, at his feet. And he was probably sitting there taking notes going, yes, there's one, there's one. And he was keeping tally of how many were going to join in making the, the punishment and judgment of Stephen final. And so he was giving approval to this event that was going on. And they're stoning him. In verse 59, it says, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. And look at his heart here. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus at the cross. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. But Stephen says, don't hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's faithfulness started when he took on the role of serving widows in his church. He served them because he loved Jesus. He knew why he loved Jesus, and he let the Holy Spirit lead his every step. He didn't say, God, I'll do this, but I'm not going to do that. I'll be willing to serve you. He loved the Lord more than his own life, to the point that he wanted to emulate Christ with everything he did. And you see that right there at the end, too. It's like, Lord, don't hold this against him. I mean, he, what he testified to at the end was Jesus um, was not seated at the Father's right hand. Where we read about, it says Jesus ascended into heaven and he took the seat at the right hand of the God, the Father Almighty in heaven, like we say in our, our creeds. But it was a standing position. Jesus, as he, his heaven is open to him, and he's revealed in his vision to Stephen, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, much like a standing ovation for his faithfulness. He's the first martyr of the faith. And Jesus is going, this is how you represent the kingdom. Stephen didn't fight back. He didn't call down a curse upon everyone that was there. He actually asked Jesus to forgive. Wow. What kind of example is that for us in our hearts? We have a habit of wanting our needs met first. We have a need in saying, well, what's in it for me? Or what will it benefit me? Or how will I know what I'm going to get? When it should be, Lord, how can you be glorified through this? Change is happening all around. How can we lift you up in all of this? How can you be honored? How can I be faithful? 
It's interesting in this interchange that happens, Saul becomes the leader of an effort to to completely eradicate the Christian movement from the face of the earth. And what he is trying to do here, it actually becomes the impetus for its expanded witness. It's as if Paul, I mean, Saul tries to extinguish a fire by stomping it out, only to scatter the flaming embers wherever he goes far and wide. Because change is happening. Saul went on from this event to to seek out Christians wherever they were, dragging them out of their houses, out of their synagogue settings, and out of the marketplace, and putting them in prison, and often seeing them put to death. That was his goal, is to squish, squish this movement of this new community. It was challenging everything that he had known and grown up with, and he wanted to stomp it out. But instead, it becomes this thing that spreads far and wide the faith and message of Christ, like never imagined. Change happens. The question is, are we staying with the mission and purpose? Are we willing to go along with the change and say, God, use me to bring about change? May I be a catalyst of your love? And in that love, will that love change the world around me? And I want to say, yes, it will. Love changes a lot of things around us. And it will change us, certainly. So my question to you, we go back to... Are we willing to alter our communication so a new generation can hear the ancient truth of God that transcends time and space and even change? I wonder if we are feeling the challenge to be faithful like Stephen, to stand for the Father wherever we go and know in our heart of hearts that He is standing for you. He is standing, giving you applause, shouting encouragement. The whole household of faith, the heavenly realms, shouts and sings for joy every time we are faithful to the Father. I hope that you can hear that with new ears today. I hope that you can hear the standing ovation as you are faithful to Christ in your walk too. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for Stephen's faithfulness, for his love for you and his example to us, to live a life that is undivided, to live a life that is truly one of a servant. Fathers, we compare to ours, which we probably shouldn't do. We fall short so many times. We're afraid. We feel like we don't know what to say or do. And Lord, that is where we need to approach you and ask for your wisdom. That your spirit will fill us with compassion and knowledge and love and grace. More than anything, Lord, make us confident in who we belong to. Take all of our heart, Lord. Fill us with your power and your love and your spirit today, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.